This evening, I don't really know what a normal sermon is, but I, I somehow feel like this isn't it. Um, you can open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. That's where we're going to start. Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to start reading at verse 4. I had thought about reading, about writing verse 4 on the board up here for us to all say together, but we won't. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to read here verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. The, these verses, um, specifically verses 4 and 5, are in Hebrew known as the Shema. S-H-E-M-A, the Shema. Traditional Jews repeat the Shema at least twice a day at prayer times. Practicing Jews, rabbinic Jews, they take this, these commands literally um, when it comes to binding them for a sign upon thy hand and frontlets between thine eyes and write them on the post of thy house. Uh, they have, you may see pictures of um, practicing Jews who would have um, a little pouch uh, on their kind of strapped uh, to the back of their hand or uh, sometimes even worn on a headband and on uh, the doorposts of some of their houses you would have a mezuzah which would have a little scroll with these verses in it and it would be fastened to the doorpost of their house. Um, they take it very seriously, uh, very literally. And while they're missing some important concepts, and most importantly, they haven't accepted the Redeemer, um, they take this, the Shema, seriously in a way I want us to learn from today. My message this evening is structured fairly closely around notes I took from a lecture by uh, Clifford Schrock back in, I think it was 2019. And he, in turn, had pulled some themes um, and ideas from Tony Ranke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. The uh, title of the message this evening is a little different. It is Shema, Smartphones, and... Salem. Two of these are Hebrew words. One is not. Um, Shema 
S-H-E-M-A, which uh, is that, that prayer that we started with. Um, and then Shema, smartphones, and Salem. And we'll get into Salem later. You can mostly leave the T off, though I'm sure that would annoy proper Hebrew speakers. Um, turn to Matthew 22. Salem being spelled T-S-E-L-E-M. We'll get into the definition of that after a little bit. We're going to focus on Shema first. Matthew 22. And if you don't have a smartphone, don't, don't tune out the message. Matthew 22 and verse 35. We're going to read Matthew 22, starting at verse 35. Um, there's a crowd here around Jesus. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Um, neighbor, the neighbor piece of what Jesus teaches here is not a traditional part of the Shema. Um, that is the, the first part. Uh, the Lord your God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the traditional Hebrew Shema. And Jesus pulls together, um, well, he, he pretty much pulls directly from Leviticus, love thy neighbor, the passage there. And he combines them in, um, in what is kind of, what I would say is, is the New Testament Shema. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So, so you get the idea of, on these hang, or can be summed up, or can be in, encapsulated. If you want a simple exercise to get a picture of this, you can consider the Ten Commandments and figure out how each of them fits under one of these two. Um, by my understanding, I would see them splitting four under one and six under the other. Do that on your own time. Don't, don't put your energy into that right now. Um, this evening, we're going to look at how this fits into our modern lives, and we're going to focus somewhat on technology, electronics, especially smartphones, mostly because that is the, the one thing in most of our lives that is the closest thing to just an extension of how we live. Um, but if you have a smartphone, I mean, if you don't have a smartphone, or you uh, think you don't use technology, um, there are still going to be lessons here for you this evening. Jesus in John 14 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then Jesus said that these two, what, what I'm calling the New Testament Shema tonight, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. Jesus says these two commandments sum up all the others. Now, the second word that we have in our title here, Salem. Um, Shema 
even if you're not familiar with the term, you're, you're at least familiar with that concept of, of those verses. We've, we've heard them over and over again. Um, for Tzalem, let's think of ancient Egypt. So they had in ancient Egypt hundreds of representations of their, their gods, their deities. Um, they, were, they were a very religious people, but in idolatry, not in, in the serving, not in true religion, not in serving the true God. Um, they had lots of so-called gods, and each of those gods had an idol, a representation. Um, and those, uh, those representations, those idols, those were Salem. That's the word that would have been used. Um, they, were, they were designed to show something of the character and nature of the deity. So, for example, Osiris was a god in their mythology. He was a ruler god, and he was basically always represented with a whip and a shepherd's staff. Anytime somebody would uh, be commissioned to carve or, um, or mold a, a tzalem, an image, a representation of Osiris, uh, he was almost always represented with a whip and a shepherd's staff. And in their religious ideas, uh, Pharaoh, when a Pharaoh died, he became um, Osiris. I'm not sure how all that worked, if he just bumped the old one out of position or if, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but they also would have said that the Pharaoh represented Osiris in life. Um, and if you look at photos of any representation of an Egyptian pharaoh, you would usually see um, the, the representations of a pharaoh would include a whip and a staff, just like they would for their representations of Osiris. And the whip was to represent uh, control and order and the staff um, provision and how he provided for needs. And so when they made a representation of one of their gods, the representation was to portray something of the character and nature of the god, of the deity. The word for that is tselem. These, these images, these representations, whether it be a carving or a molding, um, painting, what have you, uh, any, anything that was used to represent um, what the, the nature and character and vision of this uh, deity was, it was tselem. And care and honor for the tselem showed honor to the deity. So if you had a, a idol in your house to represent one of these gods, the fact that you treated it well and um, didn't disrespect it, didn't knock it over, didn't let it get dusty, all of those things, that was one of your ways of showing, um, was showing care and appreciation to the god it represented. Um, and especially for the younger ones, I'm saying god with a small g in that. Um, the Egyptians had what they thought of as gods that were not the true God. We're talking about idols there. So they, they would give care and honor to the representation, to the carvings, to the moldings, and what have you that represented the, the God that they considered above other things. Abuse and dishonor of the representation dishonored the deity. And so, you know, you'd be fearful to knock over an idol on the shelf because well, the God that that represented might come and 
show his displeasure, that sort of thing. Now, all of you are probably wondering, where on earth is this going? Think of Moses. Where did Moses grow up? Egypt. Dig a little deeper. Zoom in a little bit on the map of where Moses grew up. He grew up in the palace. Um, he was the considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Um, he was a little prince of sorts, growing up in the palace in Egypt. And so he was in the midst of this environment, and he would have seen a lot of that as he grew up and seen how these people connected the the imagery around them to the, the deities that they believed in. Um, and he would have also been around Pharaoh, um, the Pharaoh of that time, and, and would have seen how that Pharaoh tried to represent their god Osiris. Moses was commissioned to do something by God. Well, he was commissioned to do quite a number of things by God. But one of the things Moses was commissioned to do by God was to write, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first five books of the Bible. He writes about our creation. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now you may have guessed, as we read, that the word translated to image in English is the Hebrew word Salem. I don't consider that happenstance. God uses that word to describe us. He uses the word Salem. We are Salem. We are created in the image of God. We are to be a representation of the character and nature of God. So, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our tzalem, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own tzalem. In the tzalem of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that's who you are. Created in the image of the Tzalem of God. In Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, and we're all very familiar with, you shall have no other gods before me. That's in verse 3 of Exodus 20. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water, or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not have any other gods or graven images. That is not the word Salem in um, the uh, Exodus passage, but it is a, a similar, similar idea, a word that conveys a similar idea, but it is a different word. 
You shall have no other gods or graven images. Why weren't they supposed to make any images? Well, one of those he lays out, he's a jealous God. But there's, there's a factor in there in which they were the image. Because remember, in Genesis, it says that man is made in the image of God. They weren't to make a representation of God, the true God, because they themselves were to represent God. And he's a jealous God. He gets to choose who or what represents the character and nature of himself. He's a jealous God. He alone gets to choose what represents the character and nature of himself, of God. So most of that's all background for us to, to have in our minds as we, as we look at lessons for today. What does all this mean for smartphones? I put smartphones in the title. As we think about how we are to love God with all we are, our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves and be image bearers, representing the image and nature of God. Well, still here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, those verses we've read a couple times, we have the, the, the dominion piece that we haven't really touched on. Um, let them have, right after he says, uh, we're, we're making man in our image, in our likeness, man is Salem of God, let them have dominion over a bunch of creatures. So God created man in his own image. We are to have dominion. God is sovereign, but he's created us with a little piece of that called dominion. We are not sovereign, but in giving us free will um, and, and what he calls dominion, he's, he has, I'm, I'm never sure the word I want there, he's He's, he's given you a little piece of sovereignty in your own life and over the fish and the fowl, etc. He's given you a place to exercise dominion. He, he's given you a, a, a little place in, in his broad, overarching sovereignty over the whole universe. He has allowed man a certain free will that, that other creatures don't have. He's given you um, dominion, which you can... You can start to think of as, as a little piece of sovereignty over your life and over the lives of other creatures. This comes into a big subject, the concept of free will and the power of choice. Um, we're not going to start debating what all that means tonight. Um, but to exercise that dominion and even to create, to invent, to conquer things, that there's... That's part of our image bearing. That, that is part of how we are representing who God is as the creator, um, as the conqueror. The little, the little examples of that we have in our life is one of the ways we, we bear his image and, and we, um, we, we carry his image. One of the ways we are Salem. Now, I still haven't said anything about smartphones. Um, probably most of you know I work in technology for, a, uh, for an occupation uh, in information technology. And so it's pretty, it's not going to surprise anyone if I say something like technology is not inherently bad. Um, partly I say technology is not inherently bad because 
soon we'd be like the Gnostics and saying everything is evil because you start thinking about what is and isn't technology and well, um, this is technology. Um, uh, a pen, that, that's pretty amazing technology if you've ever tried to use an inkwell and a, like a quill tip. Uh, this, is, this is some amazing technology. And then I've never had to deal with um, uh, the scrolls in the synagogue closet uh, when it comes my time to, to preach on Sunday morning. Um, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled to have a bound, printed, um, well-printed, not scratched out by some scribe who, who knows how accurate he was. You know, I, I'm really enjoying that technology. And I think um, all pretty sure all of us that preach at my home congregation use either eSword or Power Bible on our computers to do some of our um, studying and putting verses into notes and things like that. So that's even a, another uh, step farther in the technology of um, printed information, uh, writing. So obviously I'm not one that's going to stand up here and say technology is inherently bad. Um, and I think, in fact, the, if we have the proper perspective of, of life and our role as image bearers, we know that anything that God allows man to create has, the, has its initial roots in coming out of our image-bearing characteristics. Um, God made us creative. God gave us our intellect, etc. Now, let, let's, let's think of... Um, this, this dominion thing, we need to have dominion over our technology. And so I'm mostly going to focus on, yes, I did bring it in. Um, I'm mostly going to be focusing on the smartphone this evening because it's, it's the thing that has, well, it's what technology has boiled down to, kind of. Um, We need to have, I need to have dominion over this. I need to be the master of this and not enslaved to it. And if you don't have one of these, um, you, you can take the step back to wherever you are in that technology chain. Um, I need to be the master of this. I cannot be enslaved to it. As an image bearer, I am to have dominion, not to be a slave. So that, that's a distinction between, that, that's a distinction. I, as an image bearer, am to have dominion in life. I am not to be enslaved in life. Are you enslaved to technology, to your smartphone, to anything, really, but, but thinking especially of those? Are you the master of your devices? See, when I say this is, is what, what technology has boiled down to, this is really what has taken technology from out there to with us all the time. This device spends more time with me than probably any other thing except my wallet. Probably. If I leave the house on any given day, I'm not always wearing the same shoes or shirt or what have you, but I almost always am carrying the same wallet 
and probably this device. It is, it is, it is really the encapsulation of technology having been an external thing to as close to internal as we can make it. Um, we're to have dominion over it. And I'm not going to describe tonight what all that looks like, but I want you to have it crystal clear in your mind that you are not to be enslaved to anything. As an image bearer of God the Father, you are not to be enslaved to anything. The only thing you can be enslaved to is God. Um, you can be his bondservant. There's nothing else in your life you are allowed to be enslaved to as, as a Christian. I think it was in 2018 when the stats were, were calculated based on um, diagnostics from the devices themselves that smartphone owners checked their phones on average every 4.3 minutes in their waking hours. So every 4.3 minutes when they were awake, on average, of course, they were checking their phone. So that means if I would preach tonight for 43 minutes, you would check your phone 10 times if it weren't for the social stigma in this group that you know, you're just not going to do that which means you'll probably make it up in the hours after this, between now and bedtime. That sounds an awful lot like enslavement to me. But see, ah, that's not me, right? That's just, that's just what all these devices reported about all the unredeemed people. Modern smartphones, whether Android or iOS, give you the option of turning on uh, iOS calls it screen time, and I think Android calls it digital well-being because that sounds so Silicon Valley cool. Um, but what it does is it lets you know at the end of the week, this is how, how much on average you had your screen on during the day and which apps you were looking at. Turn that on sometime. Not just sometime. Turn it on this week and, and run it for at least a month and, and allow yourself to be shocked that you pick it up more often than you think you do. We, when we are controlled by or, and or addicted in some way, we are not bearing the image of God. When we are controlled by something or, or we are, are addicted in some way, we are not bearing the image of God. That, does not, that is not what God looks like. Two quick notes here. Um, first, if I refer to addiction this evening, make note I'm not talking about the most technical definition of addiction. Um, and the, the dependency that is tied to that, I realize we often use addiction to refer to something that is actually not medically an addiction um, and could possibly fall under a, a better description of habit, weakness, compulsion, fixation, that type of a thing. Um, also, another can of worms we're not opening tonight to discuss what all those distinctions are. Um, but I, I may still use the word addiction tonight sometimes, even though I, I kind of don't like to. But I use it because people understand it. They know what I mean when I talk about addiction, um, even if it's not technically accurate. Um, I will just throw out there sometimes we do slap the addiction label on things that are more bad habits and trained compulsions or obsessions and not true dependencies in the, in the same way... Uh, 
certain chemical addictions are, for example. Um, anyway, that's, that's more of an aside. Um, keep in mind when I say addiction, I'm not necessarily talking about a chemical addiction, um, but, but you, you know what I mean. And a second note, when I talk about addictions, I'm not just talking about uh, an addiction to pornography, which is rampant in the world today. Um, if I say addictions, I'm not talking about just one thing that may be fed to you through your technology. I'm talking about kind of one layer more abstracted than that, um, about just the fact that you are fixated or obsessed or, or can't let yourself live without X that you're, that you're indulging or accessing through your technology. Um, you're, I don't know your, I won't use addictions here, I don't know your fixations. Um, for some people maybe it is social media, maybe it's news, maybe it's sports, fashion, maybe it's engineering. I love seeing how stuff works. I can waste a lot of time on useless diagrams of how something works that I'm never going to be called on to fix or work with. Um, where do I cross from valuable exercising of my mind into just fixating and wasting time? When we're controlled or addicted, we are not bearing the image of God. We are no longer Salem. We're breaking down our, our image-bearing nature. So, as we consider dominion some more, our dominion is to be exercised in harmony with God's dominion. So, I, I likened dominion to a, a section of God's sovereignty that he's allowing us a, a measure of sovereignty within. Um, I can, I could kill a person. God would allow that to happen. He has, he's made that possible for me as a human to take the life of another human. Look at how much of the Old Testament law was, was about the, the details of how that, well, mostly just shouldn't work. Um, that is a little slice of sovereignty. Well, one step more safe, we can say, well, I can, I can take the life of an animal, another created creature that doesn't have a soul, that isn't made in the image of God. That's an exercise of dominion. Free will, our choices, need to be harmonized with his will. So in the, in the realm where he's given me dominion, I need to harmonize what I do there with his dominion. So an example could be um, nuclear science. That's using resources God has created and put here on earth. That can be used for creating electrical power. That feels like it's in, in harmony with God's dominion. It can be used for creating a city-destroying bomb. That is obviously not in harmony. That's clashing. That's um, it's not harmony. It's cacophony, I guess. It's, it's, it's a sour note when you try to combine that use of dominion with God's dominion. So... Your actions, your decisions fall into two categories, in harmony with God's will or contrary to God's will. When you perform an action, there will either be a beautiful chord of your will and God's will coming together, or there will be a sour note. Those are the only two options, really, when you exercise your free will in light of God's will.
So a smartphone, for example, it can be used for a Bible app. That's the, the one we all point to as you know, a, a lovely reason to have a smartphone. Um, it can be used to help organize a meeting, and we know how important those are to kingdom work. Or it can be used for communicating with a brother or sister to help them. All of that within, with, with, in harmony uh, with God's dominion and designs. Or that same device could be used for feeding our flesh with the virtual junk food of the world. Um, things not in harmony with God's will and dominion. Consider, remember, there are almost always pluses and minuses with every technology, every tool. Um, and that, that ranges from a cordless drill you can do a lot more work. You can much more easily injure someone with your carelessness. Um, a, a skill saw versus a hand saw, same thing. You can get a lot more done. There are a lot of pluses, but it is quite dangerous. Um, there are always pluses and minuses. So when you see some lovely new uh, plus of a technology, um, always make yourself aware of where the minuses are. Um, Something that can be used as a useful tool can often, or well, pretty much always, be used as a tool of the devil if mishandled. And it's different to understand that than it is to exercise that. It's different to know that than it is to actually put the work in and, and exercise care and caution and realize that sometimes it may be um, metaphorically better to go ahead and use a handsaw for something because you don't want to introduce the danger of the skill saw. So access to scripture all the time, that is great, that is amazing. Like I said, I've never had to preach from the scrolls in the synagogue closet. Um, I have both a, a printed bound, um, and if you've ever worked with a printing press, you know there's plenty of technology there. Um, I've, I have a printed bound, well, um, well-reproduced uh, copy of God's Word. I have a computer where I can do very easy searches uh, or even on my phone. It's a great improvement. Clifford, when he talked about this, um, pointed out one of the, the downsides that I don't think I'd really thought about. Uh, he was in Sunday school one time and the question was asked, how old was Abraham when Sarah conceived Isaac and one guy pulls out his smartphone and Cliff pulls out his Bible and he said it was a little hard to keep the proper humility about the fact that he found it first um, with his printed Bible before the guy with his search on his smartphone but he pointed out that there is a danger that since I can hide God's word in my pocket I don't always hide it in my heart There is a big difference between hiding God's word in my pocket and hiding it in my heart. And I, Socrates, the um, Greek philosopher of old, he was anti-writing. He, he was not keen on this new writing thing that people were doing um, because he said, uh, by writing things down, you have less knowledge in your head. True knowledge is to have it in here, not to have it in a, you know, on a parchment somewhere. 
Um, and um, I both agree, I agree with his point and disagree with his practice. Um, if I didn't write things down, I would be, well, I'd be better at remembering them, but I still wouldn't remember as many as I need to, I don't think. Um, in, in technical things, I work in, in technology. I know fewer things than I did at one point, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I have a lot of notes that I can go back to, and I also have a decent... Or, or no, a, a more honed skill, there we go, at how to structure the Google search or the Stack Exchange search or what have you. But my actual knowledge base, I realized recently that what I have in here can just pull out without referring to my notes or um, technical documentation is smaller than it used to be. Because, well, I didn't, for one, I didn't used to carry a smartphone, so um, I needed to have more just ready right there because I couldn't always go back to my computer to retrieve, well, how do I do this? How does this all fit in with the Christian life? One would be hiding God's word in our heart and memorization especially. We kind of, we kind of just dismiss more than we used to because I can go find it when I need it. That's not healthy. That is not, that's not, that doesn't feed our souls in the way that, that taking it in and internalizing it does. Another, another item to consider in Shema smartphones and Salem is the impact on relationships. Um, God is, consider the Trinity, we were talking about this last evening. Um, not us, just me and one other person. Um, God is a Trinitarian God, a relational God. He was that before there was anything else. Before there was anything else created, there were still three persons of God. And I can't really wrap my head around that. But that meant there was relationship before there was any created thing. Because the three persons of God were already relating to each other. Our relational aspect is one of the ways in which we are Salem, uh, bearing the image of God. He's a relational God. There was a time when there was nothing but the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit in relationship with each other. He created us as Salem, and we bear that image as relational. And that's part of reflecting his character and nature. He created us as relational beings. Now, there are two types of relationship. Immediate, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That was an immediate relationship. Uh, we talk about our immediate family, which is the family that is directly connected. Uh, children, parents, siblings. This sermon is immediate. You, well, okay, except for the people listening um, over the phone or um, internet. For, for those of you se seated in the benches here and me standing here, this is an immediate relationship. When someone gets, when someone downloads the podcast or if they would get a CD of it, then that would not be an immediate relationship between me and that listener. There's an immediate relationship between me and those of you sitting here. The person who listens to the download later, which is fine, that is a mediated 
relationship. So immediate is not mediated. So compare after the fall, Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden and they no longer walk with God in the cool of the day. They no longer had an immediate relationship with God. Sometime later in Exodus, God establishes a mediated relationship. This came through the priesthood, sacrificial system, the tabernacle. God came down and tabernacled among the people, but he was veiled. He lived, if you read through Exodus and Leviticus and those books, okay, we like to read Exodus, but we don't like to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But if you, if you read through there, you see that God lived on the lid of a box behind the veil when it comes to his presence on earth in, in that way. That was very much a mediated relationship. It was not an immediate relationship with the people walking around in the camps, etc. People, for the most part, had no immediate relationship. It appears he had, he, he did in, in cases of with prophets, etc. But, but the people at large, even God's chosen people, had no immediate relationship with him under that system. The priest, once a year, got to come into the presence of God. Was that mediated relationship, and, and the people then would approach God through the priests, for the most part. Um, was that mediated relationship wrong? Well, whose idea was it? It was God's idea, so obviously it wasn't wrong. God's ideas are never a wrong idea or a bad idea. But was it inferior? Well, obviously, God was removed. The relationship of uh, a child of Israel living, following, um, even, you know, they, they've made it to the, the promised land. Their relationship with God was worse than the one Adam and Eve had before the fall because of that, that mediation, that, that barrier between. Jesus came to restore immediate relationship. We have immediate relationship through the Spirit, we can come boldly to the throne of grace into his immediate presence. We don't have to come through the priesthood or any medium. So mediated relationship is not inherently wrong, but it's inferior to an immediate relationship. The smartphone has brought technology into our hands. Have you ever noticed if, if you do any people watching sit in a like a shopping well these days you don't get to just sit around in shopping malls i guess um sit in a shopping mall or on a, a busy city street take note sometime of how many people are carrying their phone the whole time versus actually having it in a bag or in a pocket it's amazing it's become an extension for so many people a part of who they are just a constant in their life there are pros to this technology, we can stay in touch. Um, I was back and forth with Sean Schmidt today, um, talking about a couple things, and he's in Peru, however many thousand miles away, and I obviously am not, and we were able to communicate. Um, a friend of mine in Pennsylvania, we were able to communicate today. Um, Brent and I were able to work out a schedule detail today, even though we were however many miles apart. Great tool. And yet, when Brent and I actually got together today, that immediate relationship was way better than anything we've had over the last however many weeks over WhatsApp. 
the immediate relationship um, was just so much better. One of the one of the weird things that modern technology has given us is there, there's been a bit of a social reversal. The the smartphone especially has has introduced a shift in us as a whole. We we there's more of a flip to where we desire to be alone when we're in public, but we never want to be alone when we're in seclusion. So I'm with a group of people. Well, uh, rather than engage with these people, maybe I'd rather like shrink back and just you know get into my own little world. So I pull out my phone and check my messages, check the headlines, what have you. But then when I'm at home alone and my family have run down to the store or whatever, well, I don't want to be alone and in seclusion. So now I, I also pull out my phone and go seek out some sort of social aspect because I don't want to be alone either. We, we, we can so easily fall back from being together when we're physically together but then when we're alone and in solitude, well, we can't hardly stand it, and so then we have to reach out a little bit. Uh, Cliff, again, he talked about, so he's at SMBI, and he talked about how he noticed in the public lounge there um, how many of the students, they'd all be in the same room, but the vast majority of them would be on their phones. And he had this picture in his head, well, they're probably communicating with people back home. You know, they're, they're from spread all over the country and they're here together and so they're probably communicating with each other at home. And then he wondered, well, when they go home and go out to eat with their friends from there, are they on their phones connecting with the, their friends from SMBI? Wouldn't it be a lot more efficient to just be with their friends at SMBI when they're there and then be with their friends at home when they're there? Now, of course, that I'm not saying never pull your phone out in a group of people, but you could do it less than you do. I'm pretty confident of that. Never sac the, the what's the whole point of this immediate and and mediated thing? Never sacrifice an immediate relationship for a mediated relationship. So there's a lot of value in using these tools when you need to have a mediated relationship. Brent and I can't get together for supper every evening. So it is good if we can connect with each other over WhatsApp. But don't when we had supper this evening, it would have been pretty pitiful if I spent the majority of the time on WhatsApp because I would have been sacrificing the immediate for the mediated. So use the mediated to its value, but never sacrifice the immediate for the mediated. Uh, another point, we're going to go a little bit long this evening. I'll apologize now and probably a few more times. Love your neighbor. So in our New Testament Shema, we have love your neighbor. I won't, I won't read the account here, but we have the, the, uh, the good Samaritan or the good neighbor um, that comes. You could read it in the Luke account is, is what I had in my notes to read here this evening. Um, the man is in the ditch. He's bleeding, probably dying if he doesn't get help. A priest walks by, a Levite walks by, someone who has racial tension and every reason uh, culturally to leave him there to bleed and die is the one who stops and helps. 
Why did the priest and Levite not respond to the needs of the neighbor they met? Because they had something else to do. And I mean, obviously, the priest shouldn't have stopped, by my logic, because... I mean, he was on his way to do his job. He had a great responsibility. If the man died while he was trying to help him, the priest, you know, after touching a dead body, there was a lot of things the priest couldn't do anymore for a while until he was cleansed. I mean, obviously the priest should not get involved in that because he had important work to do. There's nothing in the way Jesus tells that story that makes me think that that's the right way to read that. I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to have a somewhat low opinion of that priest. Not go, yay for you, not deviating from your priestly duties to help that poor bleeding man. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're so often distracted, like the priest, like the Levite, distracted by our own interests, by our other responsibilities, that we say, there's a need there, but it's not my responsibility. One of my least favorite phrases in the English language is, not my job. Most of the time you say that, you're just making an excuse to do something that probably is your job. Or at least in that moment, there's a pretty good chance it is. Now, it's easy to think during a message on smartphone use or technology use, ah, so-and-so really needs to hear this. It's always someone else. The priest and the Levite were distracted by their own interests and didn't take responsibility for what was sitting right in front of them. Um, if any of this is ringing true to you, it's your responsibility to take what's sitting right in front of you. Uh, something that Clifford had mentioned when, when he gave a talk on this subject that I had never thought about was he asked, how does texting and driving fit in with the subject of loving your neighbor? And... I had never thought about that. And his point was, it's been clearly linked to a significant increase in accidents. It's illegal in most places, which that in itself makes it a moral issue. But research is indicating that in, in all these places that are making it illegal, for the most part, um, accidents were going up because instead of people stopping texting on the road, they just stopped doing it up here and started doing it down here, and so they just kept their eyes off the road longer. And the question that he asked that really stuck with me, he said, so statistically, um, studies are showing that it is, on average, you're 23 times more likely to be involved in a serious crash if you text while driving. Is it loving if it makes it 23 times more likely that my family would go to bed tonight without a husband and father because I chose to allow myself that, that higher risk in being distracted um, for whatever, whatever benefit I thought I was getting and maybe really was getting. Where's the love for my family when I do that? When I think, well, I can take care of this work text real quick, um, buzzing out, well, it's going to say 66, buzzing up 81 this evening. Where's the love in that? Or where's the love in me taking somebody else off the road 
and somebody else's wife and children don't have their husband and father come back to them. All because I allowed myself to give in to what is obviously a higher risk situation. There's no way in which I can paint that as a loving action. Consider the realities of what your technology choices mean for loving your neighbor. And then one last item, meditation. In Deuteronomy, the Shema says to talk of it, to talk of God and who he is and his bigness. God wanted to be constantly in their thoughts and awareness. Everywhere they go, he wanted them to remember, love God, love God. Psalm 1 says, a man who uh, gives, gives a picture of the man who is blessed, and it, it talks about the man who meditates on the law of God. And it gives the picture of the tree by the river of water, strong, stable, and enduring. What do I do when I get any free time? This comes out. Standing in line at the gas station. This comes out. And I check my messages. I, um, if the line hasn't moved to the point that I'm checking out, well, now I'm checking the headlines. Now I'm digging into emails, what have you. And, oh, the free time's used up. When, when is our time for meditation in 2021? Do you actually have time for meditation? You get up and do you check what's happened since you went to bed? And when you go to bed, is the last thing you do see if anything has happened that you missed? There's... Maybe that's not you, but I have a feeling it's more of you than... It's too many of you. There we go. The first thing we do is check our phones, and the last thing we do is check our phones. That's, that's not healthy. Where is the space for meditation? How much time and mental energy focused on our phone is, is focused on our phone and lost from meditation. And, and how do you resolve that problem? See, if you just fill your life to the brim with other stuff, God's the one who gets squeezed out. And how do we resolve that? I, I had seen that as a pretty big problem in my life. Um, I tended to do that. The last thing I would do before going to bed was check my phone, and the first thing I would do after getting up was check my phone. For one, you need to start weaning yourself from it. It doesn't have to be with you all the time. Um, take a walk without your phone sometime, and you'll be amazed. At, the first couple times it'll be scary, but after that you'll be amazed at how, how freeing it is. When you do have a phone, it's not going to, to explode if it rings too long. So. Remember, never sacrifice immediate relationship for mediated relationships. If you're at the supper table with your family, there is no law saying you need to answer. Um, and if there's a societal expectation that you need to answer, that's a stupid expectation and you shouldn't follow it. Don't sacrifice your supper time to pick up the phone every time it rings. Even if it is a valuable call, you can, you can make it work later. 
None of us are as important as we think we are. The world is not going to end if you wait an extra 15 minutes to finish supper and, and spend that time with that immediate connection before you return that call. Remember, Salem, bear the image of God, exercise dominion. Do not be enslaved. And Shema, love. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Use those to measure the choices you make, especially when it comes to how you use and allow technology. Thank you for your long-sufferingness.